Here's your host, Alex Garrett. You know, yesterday was the Masters, and uh, congratulations to Hideki Matsuyama. But while he was really scorching ahead of the pack yesterday, um, my dad and I watched a documentary on Ben Hogan. And here in Adapting with Alex Garrett, you talk about adaptability. I mean, that guy, Ben Hogan, a great golf legend, was actually having to adapt to recovering from a car crash that almost killed him and his wife. And only did he adapt. He went on after his crash to climb the record books, to make history, to be in uh, honored on, at the Canyon of Heroes on Broadway. He made history. And, you know, even after his injury, he had this mentality of why shouldn't a golfer birdie every hole in 18-hole match play? How cool is that? Well, here's what I believe, personally. If Ben Hogan can adapt, can have bad legs the rest of his life, and still be successful, after his crash, late 40s, early 50s, still be the great, a great one. And then walk the course day in and day out, practice day in and day out, even after excruciating pain while doing so. Then, as someone who's naturally been with one leg, why can't I walk the course of life? And why can't I inspire others to walk the course of life? If Ben Hogan can do it, so can we. Well, my next guest is uh, someone that I feel like I can relate to. She's very topical right now. We're talking about the Masters. We're talking about Hideki Matsuyama winning yesterday. First Japanese-born golfer to do so. But first of all, Chris Cheddar, thanks so much for joining my podcast today. It's great to be here. Thanks for inviting me. Chris, you joined the LPGA Tour in 1988. You've had quite a few big years in the golfing world. But why I brought you on today is because you have a very special connection with Ben Hogan, of course, the golf legend. And you know what's funny is you had that relationship at the same age I did with George Steinbrenner. So I'm like, just two kids knowing big legends. Let's talk about this, you know? <laughs> where you're like me, where you didn't really realize how just how special it was? Uh, no clue. So my story, if you want to know very quickly, is I went up to him when I was nine years old. And I said, do you know where Phil Rizzuto was? He goes, sure I do. He's up in my suite. We got him to sign a baseball and said George Steinbrenner. Keep in mind, I'm still nine, and I didn't really know. I just knew that he was a he was nice to my dad and I. And then as the years went on, and you get to know him more, it's like, yeah, this is a different side. But for yeah. the golf, for maybe a fan that doesn't really know Ben Hogan, just only knows he you know changed his hook, he changed the way he golfed, he uh, adapted after that horrible car crash. By the way, Chris, just some people were like, well, remember when Ben Hogan crashed? After Tiger's crash, I'm like, it's really nothing like it. I mean, there were two very different crashes, but we can get to that in a bit. But Ben Hogan, the man, tell us uh, why you wrote this book and, and what did you know about him for 15 years? 
Uh, well, I never, first of all, I never really planned on writing a book. I just had so many people that, you know, kept saying to me, oh, you need to do this. People want to hear about it. And, and so, you know, ultimately I decided to do it. And I, I wish that I had, you know, just taken more notes and things like that when it was happening. And of course, my dad was always telling me, you've got to write this stuff down, Chris, this is, you know, and I'm like, I'll remember. <laughs> and exactly then, what my dad like, said about uh, George Steinbrenner, my experience yeah. with him. So how old were yeah. you at the time, just so I know? Just so uh, I was know. 18. Wow. Yeah. And, uh, and I knew that he was, you know, a legend. I knew that that he had this persona, but I just, I just didn't really understand to what extent the reverence, you know, was. Uh, which was probably good. Otherwise, I'm sure I would have been more nervous. Sure. And so what did you get to see with him that maybe the public eye didn't get to see? Like, I, apparently he was known as someone who's aloof. And you decided to say, well, he actually was a human and not totally aloof, right? Yeah. I mean, I I, I would see. I, I think that if people were trying to, you know, pull something over on him or use him in, in any way, that was when you would get this aloof side. Um, if he didn't think that you were trying, you know, like I'm um, an example would be, you know, someone coming up and acting like they were great friends so that they could then introduce him to a friend that they brought you know, to the club that day to introduce him to. And, you know, he just kind of hated that where people would act differently than, you know, he knew they were, I guess. Um, and what I saw was, you know, he was very generous, um, always thinking about other people. Like he was the, the man at the club who, knew when one of the waitresses, one of the wait staff was, was struggling and he was the one that would, you know, pull out his hat and be like, okay, everybody put money in. We're going to give money to, you know, so-and-so today because her kid's sick. Like he was that way. Uh, but then he never wanted people to um, talk about it. You know, he would, he would, give money to people or, or help people out. And he'd always say, you know, but I don't want you to tell anyone about it. Well, that's interesting. Cause you know, Steinbrenner, George Steinbrenner was sort of the same way. Right. So they kind of yeah. have this old fashioned, I'm going to do this, but, uh, that if but you do we, don't, we don't talk about our good deeds. We, you know, that's something that you just do because you're supposed to. And, uh, you know, and it's funny cause George Steinbrenner managed a whole team. He basically managed his life and his, his recovery. I mean, he just was uh, somewhat, I feel like a one man band, Ben Hogan. Would that be far off to say? I mean, I, you know, I really don't know anything about George Steinbrenner. I don't know Ben Hogan, so though, but Ben really Hogan know. felt like a man, one man band. You know, like he kind of just oh. on the course. I mean, he loved his caddies, but he was he was coming up with these ideas daily. You know, it was amazing to watch him perfect that swing. Uh, I'm sure. Yeah, he 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 was definitely a loner, and and really, 
his caddies, he he didn't want them to say anything. Like he basically wanted them to carry the bag and 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 just not not bother him. Well, let me um, ask you, but, but now one of the things that people always talk about is that he didn't talk much on the golf course. And what he told me was he was afraid if he did, he would get, you know, so into the conversation that he would lose his focus on the golf course. And so that was why he didn't talk a lot where, you know, I'm, I'm just the opposite. Like I like to talk to people and, and then I can turn it on and off and I'm able to, you know, get my focus back where if I had to focus for five hours, like that would drive me crazy. Um, but he understood that that was me and he never tried to change that about me. Well, did he, did he inspire your golfing career? I mean, you know, you won this uh, classic, the Walgreens classic and, 2015 and you've been on the circuit as I said since 1988 so in those years of sort of his mentorship how did he help you on the golf course you know he I he saw how hard I was working at it and I think that was probably the first thing that you know brought his attention on me was that you know I was really I loved the game and I was working hard at it and he just kind of started taking me under his wing and giving me a few pointers here and there. And, and, you know, then once I got more comfortable with him, I, I started asking more questions. And I think that the fact that I was a young college student, all I cared about was my golf. I was not asking any general questions like, you know, do you have a secret or anything like that? Like I was asking specific questions about my golf game. And um, so he knew that I wasn't trying to, you know, gain anything from him or, you know, if I'd have, if I'd have been taking notes, he'd have been like, why are you, you know, why are you writing those down? Why are you um, telling the secret, right? Yeah. But, you know, he just, you know, trusted me that, that I was just trying to get better. And, um, I just became, we became really good friends. You know, I mean, we would, he would come out every time I was out at Shady Oaks hitting balls and just kind of watch me hit. And, you know, it wasn't all golf. It, it was, we would just chat about, you know, regular stuff. Um, and, and he was funny. He was very, very funny. That's something that people don't really realize about him. You know, he had this very dry sense of humor and um, just to, you know, we would, we would just kind of pick at each other a little bit, you know, tease each other. Well, um, said something interesting about what you first really said to him on the golf course about, uh, what was it, bean soup, I think it was. I, meant, I saw that oh. in the documentary Hogan. It was a fascinating story or a documentary, and I saw you on there. That's how I knew to reach out. And so tell us what you told them. Maybe people didn't catch the series. Yeah, well, you know, this is this is a typical example of us kind of teasing each other back and forth. Um, you know, he that's always, that was always his, his lunch order, <laughs> almost always, you know, a cup of bean soup um, and bacon. That was a specialty at Shady Oaks. And so one day he orders his bean soup and bacon with a side of bacon, not just bacon in the bean soup. It was a side of bacon. 
Um, and I said, I said, Mr. Hogan, that's, that's terrible for your blood pressure. He's like, you're terrible for my blood pressure. Well, I tell you, Mr. Steinbrenner jokingly said, well, I sent you up to Boston and we lost against the Red Sox. <laughs> you're fired. So I, I've kind of been there too, but you know, yeah. that kind of, um, I guess humility. And, and then as you said, fun side of these guys that, yeah, like, well, here's another example. I, I, had Bob Rotella was going to be out at the golf course the, the next day. So I wanted to give Mr. Hogan a heads up that I had someone I wanted to introduce him to. And I said, you know, Hey, Mr. Hogan, um, this friend of mine, Bob Rotella is going to be out here tomorrow. And I'd really like to introduce him to you. And he goes, just deadpan too. He goes, I've met all the people I want to meet. And most people have been like, okay, bye, you know, and, and I was like, oh, you said that before you met me. And look how that turned out. Mm-hmm. He just kind of looks at me. He's like, hmm, worst day of my life. <laughs> just drops his head. But, you know, I knew that he was, was teasing me. And that was just the relationship that we had. So, Chris, I got to ask you, because I'm very proud to tell my story of knowing George Steinbrenner at such a young age. How proud of you are you to say you knew the Ben Hogan and a different side of Ben Hogan. I'm sure there's some pride you have just telling these stories day in and day out. Well, that's what was sort of funny about it was when I first met him, um, I really didn't tell a lot of people about it because actually the few people that I would maybe mention it to who, you know, who maybe I didn't know well or whatever, they just wouldn't believe me. They, I mean, they literally, when you just would be like, yeah, you know, I'm a member of Chibi Oaks, we're Hogan's member. They, you could just see that they didn't believe you. That's how, that's how reclusive he was. And, and so I kind of quit even trying to tell people about it because they, it, it, you almost lost credibility. Like people would be like, oh yeah, right. You know? And so. I didn't tell a lot of people. And then when I played the U.S. Open in uh, Fort Worth, he came out and, you know, watched me play a few holes. And it was sort of like the cat was out of the bag and, and, um, you know, people knew about it. But then when I wrote the book in like 2010, I had a caddy who was really, you know, still a good friend, but he wasn't caddying for me anymore. And, um, I said, can I send you some of, you know, the first few chapters of my book? I'd really like your opinion. And I sent them to him and he, he read them and he calls me up and he's like, Cheddar, he goes, I walked the fairways with you for five years. I had no idea that you knew him this well. And I said, well, well what did you think when I said I was writing the book? And he's like, <laughs> Well, I have to admit, I was a little bit worried (laughs) because I just didn't really talk about it that much, I guess. Chris, you know, you you have a very, Chris Tedders was on too. She actually has had quite a successful career, $3 million in prize money, eight under par, uh, which still stands as a British Open nine-hole record. I mean, to get anywhere under par, I think for the average person is special. So I got to ask you. How you can get eight under in one in one turn. We'll talk about that in a minute. But you and Ben have a very similar story. You didn't have a crash. 
but you did get you did have a couple of hip surgeries here. I'm reading, and you had to come back yeah. from that. So, talk about that adapting because my podcast is adapting with Alex Garrett. So, as a golfer, and I, no one can imagine what Ben Hogan was going through after having to walk and walk after that, you know, horrific crash. But for you adapting, did he help you through? I mean, was he? He, he did. Sort of there, but he, did he inspire you to adapt and get back on the course after? He was always very encouraging. And when I was first on tour, I had a lot of shoulder problems. Um, I have super loose joints, and my shoulder was actually popping out when I would swing. It was sort of after my first year on tour, the the wear and tear of playing so much more golf just kind of got to be too much. And I was told I needed total reconstruction on both shoulders. And, and then I went to another doctor who said, oh, God, don't do that. You know, for you, it'll just loosen back up and you're going to end up, you know, worse off. And, you know, I was getting all these different opinions. And, you know, they were telling me that I had no chance of continuing to play professional golf. It was just going to be, you know, too much for, for my body. And I was pretty discouraged. And I remember talking to him about it. And, and he was like, listen, you know, the doctors told me I would never walk again, let alone play golf. And, you know, they don't, they don't always know. They don't know what you can overcome. And he really talked about just being single-minded and, and just doing what it takes to get what you want. Hmm. So he was, he was quite inspiring. And so having all these issues, how did you work through it? How did you, how did you get your shoulders back into, because I mean, in addition to walking the course, you've also got to have that arm strength, right? To get the ball. Yeah. Way across. So I, to do it. I was fortunate that um, I, I, one of the doctors suggested I see a physical therapist who was out in Vegas, and he's like one of the best physical therapists I've ever worked with. And he just put me on a really strict exercise program with low weight, high repetition that um, ultimately, you know, I never ended up getting any surgery on my shoulders. I just had to keep them really, really strong. Hmm. And, uh, well, and you made a career out of it. And then how about the hip side? Once your legs started operating on it, but how did that uh, work out in, in 2000, in the 2000s? Yeah, I started to have hip problems. And again, like nobody could really figure them out. This was, this was pretty early on. And, um, I was one of the first people to have the orthoscopic hip surgery. Um, you know, doctors were, they did MRIs and they couldn't find anything wrong. And they're like, you know, nope, you're fine. And I kept saying, I am, there's something wrong here. And finally, I found a doctor who said, well, the best MRI of the hip is only 75% accurate. I think we need to just go in there. And I'm sure we're going to find a label tear. And so, you know, it had gotten to the point where I was really struggling to even play. And so I did that. And sure enough, I had a, I had a pretty big tear. And, you know, I went into the surgery thinking I'd be back in like six to eight weeks. And it turned out because it was such a bad tear, it was into 
um, the cartilage that it was six to eight months before I was able to play again after that one. Um, and then I, I kept getting the tears and eventually had to have both hips re replaced. But, you know, I would just look at that as, okay, you know, it's forced time off. I'm going to go home and uh, I had young kids. And so, you know, I just sort of took those times and enjoyed them for what they were. As much as I wanted to be out playing, there was good things about just being home and, and being able to spend a lot of time with my kids when they were young and um, that sort of thing. Well, I see you finished second in the 1996 U.S. Open to Annika Sorum-Sams. I mean, that's pretty impressive. So talk to me about that era of golf, of women's golf, and then what your feeling is on the LPA PGA now. I, I don't know. Is there a solid name that people – because we have Michelle Wee, we had sorum Sam, we had you – who is there now that people are, are talking about uh, the, these these days in, in the Yelp? Well, there's there's a lot of good players uh, on the LPGA. I uh, I mean, I think the '90s were you know just the golden age of the LPGA. I mean, there we had a lot of tournaments and it was really popular. I feel fortunate that I was able to play. Um, you know, during that time, I was, it was, my career was winding down uh, when uh, Mike Wan came on. And I just remember being in the player meeting, listening to him talk about the future and how excited he was to be there and, and everything. And I mean, he, he was a fantastic commissioner for the LPGA. Um, you know, I'm, I'm sad that he's moving on, but he'll be fantastic for the USGA. <laughs> um, but there's, it, there are so many good players. I mean, the players now, they just, they come out and they are ready to win. Uh, as always. And I would say that in the, on both sides too. Now I've got to ask you about Augusta because we just, all the masters, but for women, I mean, obviously they were not allowed to be there until a few years ago. So when they opened the course in Augusta to women, what was your first reaction? How excited were you when they? <laughs> I was like, it's about time. <laughs> but um, no, it's they. Augusta has come a long way. It's it's good to see. Um, they don't, you know, they don't really bend to, to pressure. So when they, when they make decisions and, and open, open things up, you know, it's, it's always, always their decision. It's not really, it doesn't have anything to do with any outside forces, I don't think. Uh, no, but I mean, it's, really it's great. It and, and I love that they've got this amateur tournament there now. Well, a lot of things are just happening in Augusta. So have you gotten to play there? I've got to ask you. I have not. I have not ever played there, and I would would love to one of one of these days. I had a chance to and just wasn't able to, you know, make it work. I was playing tournaments and, you know, just wasn't able to make it work. But, you know, hopefully one of these days. Well, since, you know, retiring from playing, 
I'm sure you're still involved with the golf world. So what is your role nowadays? Like, how do you, are you helping teach younger women about coming back, coming to the game? And what's your role now with golf? Well, I do still play on the legends tour. Um, so I, at least I, I still get to compete a little bit. We don't have a lot of tournaments, but, um, you know, it, it's fun to get out there. Sure. Um, and I, I do teach a little bit. Mainly I give playing lessons, um, where, which is different. It's different than a swing lesson. You know, take people out on the course and just, you know, work on course management and sort of specialty shots that you run into out on the golf course that you you need and you don't people don't usually think about some of those things um you know in a regular swing lesson and again when you when you do all this when you still have this involvement when you even play on the legends tour is ben hogan's that time you had with him in your brain like every day like is this is he someone you still think about obviously you do but to what extent even off the golf course yeah, I think just a lot of the things that he taught me are just kind of part of me now. Um, it's funny, today I was giving a guy a lesson and he, you know, he hit a couple of drivers and he said, I don't usually like to end with, with my driver. I said, well, that's one of the things Mr. Hogan taught me. He said, never end with the driver. You know, always go back and hit hit a few wedges to get your timing back. So, yeah, you know, I mean, Things that he taught me come up probably every day, and, and half the time I might not even think about it. But you know, I did. I spent a lot of time with him, and I did learn a lot from him. Chris, I know that you have two daughters, and and are you raising them in golf? Or are they athletes, or what's they? Uh, they have no interest in golf. Um, if you ask one of my daughters, she'll just look at you and go, you know, no, golf is not a sport. Uh, so she's a rock climber. Uh, my other daughter is, uh, well, she was a soccer player, but she's had a few, uh, concussions and she had to stop playing. So, you know, maybe there's hope, maybe I can get her still to play some golf, but you know, I, I always tell people if you can just get your kids to have a swing, teach them, you know, some type of swing when they're growing up, if they ever decide to take up the game, it is so much easier if you learn to swing as a kid. And this so at the very ask, least, how did you uh, get that, the that's what I've done for my kids. They can each swing the golf club. But how did you get eight under par? I got to ask you this. That's pretty impressive. Well, there is a bit of a funny story behind that. Um, my my ex-husband was caddying for me, and I had played the backside first and played horrible. It was a par 35, and I was five over. I shot 40, and in the middle of the ninth fairway, the 18th fairway, which was my ninth, my husband, who was catting for me, you know, we had this discussion about, I was saying it was an eight iron, he was saying it was a seven iron, and he was the only caddy who could bully me, and where I would give in, and so I was like, fine, I'll hit the seven, and I hit it, and then one hopped it over the green, and I was so mad, and, you know, I was already four or five over, and so I was already not in the best of moods, but, you know, then that happened, and I was just 
really mad and I thought to myself, I'm not going to talk to him the rest of the day. And so I go on the back nine and, and I was just, you know, playing along and I was consciously trying not to talk to him uh, because I was still mad. And, and I chipped in on the last hole and he comes up to me. He goes, I cannot believe you. I go, why? He goes, do you know what you just shot? And I said, no. And he goes, he thought I shot 28 because it was par 37 and I'd shot eight under. Um, but it was 29. <laughs> and the and so that means it was a 37. That's that's very impressive. And, and it's been a record ever since it says here. Yeah, it's held up. So we'll see. I'm sure someone will break it one of these days. Now it says British Open was what? What were this St Andrews or where was this course? It was at Royal Brookdale. What's your favorite course to have played so far in your career? Well, I love playing out at Pebble Beach. Um, Pebble Beach, I, I've been fortunate and played Cypress Point, which is also one of my favorite courses. Um, and probably my favorite course on tour that we played was where they played the ANA, the um, Dinosaur course out at Mission Hills out there. And that's where you also finished second, if I'm not mistaken. I, yep, yep. Well, that's pretty pretty good stuff, Chris. And, you know, I was thinking golf is a game of adaptability because every every hole is just different, right? So you got to manage every hole pretty much. There's not one set of instructions for each one you've got to change up every basically every shot i would say yeah and that was one thing that mr hogan taught me and and he did was every day that he went out and you know was getting ready to play he'd go to the range and and he would hit balls and he would find what was going to be his thought for that day because you know, your body changes, conditions change, you know, things change and you do have to adapt. So, you know, he had a different swing thought each day, you know, just what was going to work for him that day. And, uh, and I feel like you've taken that into your own uh, career here. You, you do it. And, you know, one yeah. of the favorite things that they said in this documentary, and I feel like you embody this because obviously you've, you've been so successful is, he believed there's no reason a golfer can't at least birdie every hole. And I thought that's an amazing mentality. Yep. He, he definitely believed it could be done. Okay, Chris, if people want to know more about the book, it's called Mr. Hogan, The Man I Knew. Uh, I see you have a website as well, Chris, T-S-C-H-E-T-T-E-R.com, at Chris, same spelling, T-S-H-E-T-T-E-R as well but is there any final thoughts you'd like to tell my audience about golfing and that even for the average golfer like who who maybe get frustrated on the course like why can't i do this what what's your thoughts for them too well i think a lot of times uh well two things first of all i always tell people that you need to talk to yourself like you would want a good caddy to talk to you like no good caddy is going to say you are so stupid i can't believe you hit it over there <laughs> you, know, you really have to be kind to yourself playing this game 
So that would be number one. And then number two is you're try to always think about what it is that you're trying to do. You know, so many times people go, Oh, what did I do on that shot? Oh, and then I did this or I did that. It's like, no, think about what you're trying to do. Don't, don't worry about what you might've done. Just keep working towards what you're working on in your swing. Because otherwise you start bouncing back and forth like, Oh, I did this. So I'm going to go the other way. And, you know, no, just keep working on what you're working on. And I know you're in Virginia right now, but have any New Yorkers reached out to you and even New York podcasters? I, do you know Anne Liguori by chance? She covers golf. I do. Yeah, she yeah. and I are close friends up here. So uh, to give her uh, your best, it's, that's awesome. We have a mutual here. All right, definitely. So, uh, and if people from New York want to reach out still for your lessons, how can they do that exactly? Uh, on my website. And if people want the book and they want me to sign it, um, they can they can go through the website and, and I'll send them out. Well, this has been my conversation with Chris Chatter, T-S-H-E-T-T-E-R. And here at Alex Garrett, we're always adapting. Chris, thanks for joining me. You bet. Thanks for having me. And I love to have you back on. Have a great as, rest of your day. As golf keeps going, I'd love to have you back on this year. So let, let's work on that, too. All right. Sounds good. Thank you. I'm Alex Garrett. We'll talk to you soon. Oh, man.